This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Northrop Grumman, the value of performance. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, December 6th, the Washington Post held a Transformers Defense Summit headlined by Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford. General Dunford discussed how the Pentagon is modernizing America's armed forces and revealed key military challenges facing the country. Director of the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, Dr. Stephen H. Walker, assessed how the United States and other nations are reducing the reliance on traditional machinery of warfighting and adapting military strategy to next-generation technology. In this segment, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford, discusses key threats facing America now and in the future, and how the U.S. military is preparing for them. He discusses military modernization, emerging cyber threats, and the risks posed by our global adversaries. Let's listen. Thanks, David. Thank you, General. It's a, it's a great pleasure for all of us at the Washington Post to have General Dunford with us today for this conversation. Uh, as in all of our conversations here, we invite the audience uh, in the room uh, and uh, streaming to send us any questions uh, to the hashtag PostLive. Uh, just to say a word about, about General Dunford, to me he's been a symbol of continuity uh, in our country in two ways I want to mention. First, he was initially appointed as chairman uh, in 2015 uh, under President Obama. He was reappointed in May by President Trump for a second two-year term. So there's that first uh, continuity uh, that, that really is a, a symbol of, of what endures in our country. Secondly, I note uh, every uh, few days, it seems, that General Dunford is talking with his counterparts around the world, uh, from allied countries, from potential adversaries. Uh, and this continuity of military to military contacts, again, reminds me of what's continuous, what has nothing to do with the daily ups and downs that we're often reporting uh, in, in, in the newspapers. So, General Dunford, thank you for, Thanks. for, for Thanks. coming. I want to begin uh, with uh, an area that you have focused on uh, with the chiefs. Uh, with the, with the, the administration, uh, and that's looking uh, anew at our uh, peer competitors, the, the, the countries who would challenge us in renewed great power uh, competition, uh, obviously uh, Russia and China. And I want to take each of those in turn and start with, with Russia and the events of several weeks ago that uh, got all of our attention in which the Russians uh, intercepted and captured three Ukrainian uh, vessels in the Kerch uh, Strait uh, in the area off the Ukraine uh, coast, off, off Crimea. If you watched the, the, the tapes that were disseminated of, of that, you heard the Russian captain of one of these boats screaming and cursing as he drove his vessel right into the Ukrainian tug uh, with an enormous crash. And I couldn't help uh, but, but worry watching that about, about the Russian willingness to take risks. So I want to ask you, from a military standpoint, um, how did you read what happened uh, in that incident? What did it tell you about the Russian military, about President Putin's willingness to use power? And what do you think we should do about it? Sure. I think it, it says a lot about Russia's uh, respect of international norms and standards. And, and what took place in the Sea of Azov is, is consistent with a pattern behavior that really goes back to Georgia, uh, the Crimea, and then the Donbass in, in the Ukraine. And, uh, and what, it, what we refer to this as, uh, you know, competition that falls short of armed conflict where what the Russians are really doing is testing the international community's resolve in enforcing the rules that exist. And in this case, uh, clear violations of sovereignty have taken place. And, and that doesn't by any means uh, indicate that there should be a military response. But I think that the international community certainly has got to respond diplomatically, economically, or in a security space, or Russia will continue to do what they've been doing now over the last couple of years. 
So there have been calls in the aftermath of this for providing uh, uh, naval weaponry to the Ukrainians, who obviously were very vulnerable in, in this incident. Uh, the administration decided to provide javelin anti-tank uh, weapons to deal with uh, Ukrainian vulnerabilities. What, what do you think, again, from a military standpoint, about the utility of having those kinds of, of missiles? Would, would that sure. be stabilizing or destabilizing? First, first of all, uh, our relationship with the Ukraine is really focused in two areas. One is we're assisting them with reforming uh, their defense, and I'm now speaking just to the military dimension. And the second is we have equipped them uh, with capabilities that allow them to defend themselves. Uh, there is not, so we don't confuse the two issues, there is not a discussion ongoing right now about a military dimension in response to the Sea of Azov. Obviously, uh, my job in uniform is to make sure that the president has options available uh, should he decide uh, to respond uh, with military force. But there's no, been no military response, nor has there been a discussion about a military response to the Sea of Azov uh, in public. And again, our focus with the Ukraine is we believe that, that the Ukraine sovereign is something that's sacrosanct, and, and we've assisted them in defending their sovereignty. You talk often, uh, as I indicated earlier, with your Russian counterpart, uh, General Gerasimov, uh, and I, I'm curious whether you've had conversations since this incident and about this incident to try to establish some understandings, rules of the road. Has that happened? No, I, I have I do speak to him uh, fairly regularly. We've met three times uh, since I've been on my assignment. Uh, we've 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 communicated many many times uh, by telephone. Uh, a couple of things I would say about that. One is uh, the nature of our conversation is designed to mitigate the risk of risk calculation with Russia, and then in the event of a crisis, help manage a crisis. And you referred to in your opening comments, David, Syria, and we obviously have had spoken a great deal about deconfliction in Syria, but we also have spoken a lot about ensuring that incidents at sea or incidents in the air uh, don't precipitate a crisis. So rules of the road, if you will, that pertain to our forces at sea and our forces in the air. I haven't spoken specifically about this incident. And typically, were I to uh, communicate on an incident like this, it would be to deliver U.S. policy. And right now, that you know, whatever messages we're delivering are being delivered by our political leadership. If this audience could listen in on one of your conversations with General Gerasimov, would we be reassured that there's more uh, stability and continuity in this relationship than it sometimes seems? Sure. The one thing I would say to the audience is we've worked very hard to ensure that our relationship doesn't become politicized. I think we're both very aware uh, of the nature of our political relationship right now between the two countries. And we both are committed to maintaining lines of communication. I think his perspective is similar to mine in terms of the risk of miscalculation and making sure that we have open lines of communication and to the extent that we can, some degree of transparency that would uh, mitigate the risk of miscalculation. I think that while I have never spoken publicly about the substance of the phone call, and one thing you should be comforted by is that we conclude each phone call uh, with a commitment to each other not to publicly discuss the nature of our phone call. And, and I'm now three years plus into this relationship, and never once uh, has, that, has that been violated. In fact, we inadvertently violated it once when I shared the information with somebody else who shared it and it went public. And the, so the only violation of our commitment not to share information was something that we did inadvertently. Uh, I would just say about General Gorosimov, he's, he's a military professional. We clearly uh, have challenges reconciling the political differences between our two countries. But in terms of uh, military commitments, military discussion, and trying to do the best we can to support our political leadership and give them the decision space necessary to work through some tough issues, I think, it, I think we have contributed to stability uh, with that line of communication. And certainly uh, in Syria, without going into too much detail now, we certainly can later if you want to, but the, uh, the, the communications between General Grossimov and myself have been very important for us to deconflict operations in, in Syria. And by deconflict, what I really mean is that has allowed us uh, in a very complicated, complex battle space. Uh, it's allowed us to prosecute the campaign against ISIS while deconflicting with uh, a large presence of Russian forces on the ground as well, and obviously regime forces writ large. So I should just uh, take uh, the, this moment to ask you about Syria. Uh, are, are we now finally, after this long nightmare of war, heading toward uh, some uh, stabilization of Syria? Do you, do you see that ahead? 
Sure. Well, you know, we go back to the beginning uh, in, in the fall of 2015, and you, you certainly uh, were paying very close attention to it during that particular time. In the fall of 2015, I think we'd be having a very different conversation about ISIS, and they hold about 2% of the ground that they held in Iraq and Syria back in 2015. We've reduced the flow of foreign fighters in and out of uh, Syria and Iraq uh, significantly since that time, and they have access to far less resources, and I, I, I think I would argue as well, harder to measure, but the the uh, the uh, narrative uh, has less credibility than it did back in 2015. So they hold less physical ground. Their narrative is probably resonating a bit less. I am not at all complacent about the work that remains to be done. So we've largely cleared, except for the last vestiges of uh, ISIS in the Euphrates River Valley, we've largely cleared the physical manifestation of ISIS inside of Syria. That doesn't mean there aren't still thousands of fighters in Syria. And the work that remains to be done, and the word that you use, stabilization, to me what that means is we've got to complete the training of local forces that can prevent ISIS from coming back. And then in conjunction with our State Department partners, we've got to make sure that there's effective local governance and then services being provided. And I'm not talking about reconstruction, but I'm talking about basic water, sewage, power, jobs, those kinds of things that need to be done in order for us to uh, to say that the area has been stabilized. So I would say we're well along in clearing ISIS uh, from the ground that they've held in Syria, and we still have a lot of work to do in terms of the stabilization phase. And uh, just a final question of special interest to me, because I've been lucky enough to travel with our special forces uh, in eastern Syria a number of times. How much longer do you expect they'll, they'll stay there? We have the sense that something under 2,000 uh, special operations forces are still in eastern Syria. That they're that they're there on a on a uh, indeterminate, uh, unspecified uh, time timeline. What would you say about how, how much longer you think? Yeah, the one thing that I've I've probably gained some humility uh, over the last few years about projecting timelines, and so so I won't do that. Uh, I will give you some idea of the order of magnitude of the work to be done. We estimate, for example, about thirty-five to forty thousand local forces have to be trained and equipped in order to provide stability. Uh, we're probably somewhere on along the line of 20% through the training of those forces. So we've trained and equipped forces that have cleared. Those are combat forces, uh, Syrian Democratic forces, a balance of Arab and Kurdish forces who have done the, the majority of the fighting in Syria against ISIS. But with regard to stabilization, we still have a long way to go. And so I'd, I'd be reluctant to affix a time. Uh, I, would I would highlight, though, that our military campaign is designed to two thing, do two things. One is to defeat ISIS, and that includes the stabilization that we just discussed. And the other is uh, to provide support to Secretary Pompeo in the diplomatic efforts that he has to resolve uh, the Syrian civil war, and that is through a Geneva process, a United, the United Nations Geneva process. And so our presence in Syria is associated not only with, uh, with the ISIS fight, but also in support of the diplomatic effort of Secretary Pompeo. And that's why it's difficult for me to, to speculate as to how long we might be there. But certainly the conditions uh, have changed a great deal over the last three years. And I think we are certainly at a point where we can say that the presence we have in Syria right now uh, is sustainable and can, be in, uh, and can be adjusted based on conditions. Well, that's the, I'm going to take away from that that they're not leaving anytime soon, or at least that you don't you don't have that in prospect. Which no, that's right. For friends of, yeah. of Syrian stability is probably good news. Let me ask you a final question about Russia, and that involves the uh, announced uh, U.S. intention to leave the INF Treaty, and the concerns that I think are widely. Uh, shared that we may be heading into a new arms race with with Russia in strategic weapons. And I want to ask you whether you you think again, as the president's chief military advisor, that it would be useful to have some discussion again of arms control that could fill in the gaps that are obviously there in the INF treaty and in other areas. Is this a time when we should be thinking again about? What kind of arms control dialogue should we have? Sure, uh, that's a great question. And, and first, what I would say is that, uh, you know, conceptually, uh, I believe that the arms control agreements that we've had in the past have contributed to strategic stability. I think there can be no doubt about that. The regime of arms control agreements that really began in earnest in the 1980s have provided a degree of strategic stability. 
the issue is that in order to have strategic stability as an outcome of arms control, both parties have to be compliant with the, with the agreement. And we have now for three or four years uh, highlighted uh, Russia's non-compliance with the INF Treaty. And, uh, and then Secretary Pompeo this week at NATO uh, indicated that within 60 days we will suspend our compliance with the INF Treaty unless Russia comes into compliance. He emphasized that our strongest desire is that Russia does come into compliance. And, uh, and again, this is a message that has been delivered fairly consistently now over a couple of years. We've been public about it. Uh, we've been public with our allies about the concerns of the INF. My, in, a, in a perfect world, what I would say is that it'd be best if Russia would comply with the INF which would set the conditions for a broader conversation about other arms control agreements to include the extension of START. Uh, I, I will not obviously make this decision, I'll make recommendations, but it's very difficult for me uh, to envision uh, progress in extending START II as an example uh, if the foundation of that is non-compliance with the INF Treaty. And so I think, I think working our way through the INF Treaty, bringing Russia back into compliance ought to be what's in all of our interests. And were that to be the case, then I think we can begin to have a conversation about uh, mechanisms that can contribute to strategic stability in the 21st century, much like it did in the 20th century. Conditions have changed, weapons have changed, some capabilities have been fielded or will be fielded, weren't even envisioned when the current regime of arms control was put in place. And so those are pretty difficult issues in and of themselves. And if you don't have a foundation of compliance with yesterday's treaties, it's very difficult to talk about tomorrow. Is there still time for that uh, discussion about how Russia could, could uh, meet our compliance concerns? To, uh, still time for that to take place. The clock is ticking, and this one's about to, you know, this train's about to leave. What, what do you think? I think Secretary Pompeo's uh, presentation in, in Brussels, uh, which was very consistent with the discussion that took place in the G20, was designed as one last effort mm -hmm. uh, to afford the Russians the opportunity to become compliant. So he didn't say we were suspending our compliance with the treaty. He said that within 60 days we will suspend our compliance if Russia doesn't come into compliance. And, and I think also uh, there was an effort there to make sure that there's many voices speaking to Russia right now, not the least of which is the voice of NATO as a whole, the 29 nations of NATO, all highlighting for Russia the concerns about non-compliance with the INF and the implications for European security. So let's let's turn to China, the other uh, uh, peer competitor. And uh, General, I, I have the, the feeling that when we think about China, in, in some ways we're thinking for the first time in our modern history about a genuine peer in the future, a, a country that's as rich as we are, that's as technologically sophisticated as we are, a country that really can challenge us in a way that, frankly, Russia and the Soviet Union never entirely could except through their nuclear weapons. Uh, and so I want to ask you, um, as you think about, about China, uh, to describe for, for us what kind of military capability you think they're trying to build. Do they want to challenge us? Globally, uh, do they want to challenge us regionally? Uh, how do you think about sure, this? Sure, sure. First, when we look at ourselves, uh, the U.S. military, we think there are two areas, two main areas that give us a competitive advantage. One is the network of allies and partners that we built up since World War II. The other has been the historic ability to project power when and where necessary to advance our interests. And, and in that latter area, which is specifically the military dimension of our source of strength, we have been largely uncontested uh, over the last few decades. Uh, that changed. That changed in the past decade. Uh, I would argue that China, we spoke about Russia a minute ago, but both China and Russia studied uh, what we did in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, certainly took a hard look at what we did uh, throughout the air campaigns in the late 1990s, and certainly looked at what we did in 2003 in our ability to project uh, vast, vast amounts of equipment, material, uh, people uh, around the world relatively quickly. So they have focused on denying the United States the ability to project power into the Pacific and then operate freely across what we call all domains. That's Pentagon speak for sea, air, land, space, and cyberspace. And, and I think what's fair to say, and it really gets at the heart of your question, is China has developed capabilities in all of those domains that challenge us. And, uh, and the outcome of challenging us across those old domains is 
challenging our ability to project power in support of our interests and our alliances in the region. And so what we have to do on the military side is we, we believe that conventional deterrence has rested on that ability to project power when and where necessary to achieve our interests. The strength of our alliances has, has depended on that in the sense that our allies know that we can respond uh, and we can meet our alliance commitments because of our ability to project power and then operate freely once we get to that area. So I think from a military perspective, the way I would frame the problem is, one, it's our responsibility to develop capabilities that assure our ability to project power and then operate freely across all those domains. China, in his large debates about how much uh, China is spending in their capability development, and with the uh, recognition that it's fairly opaque, uh, both China's uh, fiscal, uh, inve the investments they make, as well as the capabilities they develop, I think what's not in dispute is over the last 10 years, they have significantly advanced what in the Pentagon they describe as anti-access area denial capabilities. And what that really gets at is that ability of the United States to move into an area and, again, operate freely once we get there. And that's a critical element, again, of deterrence and then our ability to respond in the event that deterrence would fail. I would also remind everyone that's listening that we have five uh, treaty allies in the Pacific. Uh, and, you know, these are allies that we have a hard commitment to their security. And so when we talk about projecting power and, and, uh, and being able to operate freely across all domains, what we're really talking about is our ability to meet the requirements of those five treaties. Just to, to drill down on this, when you think about the, the future, when you read about the Chinese efforts to build port facilities in Pakistan or Djibouti or this place or that, do you envision, uh, let's say, a Chinese Navy that will seek to be a global blue water Navy uh, like what the United States developed? Or, or, or do you think that their, their ambitions are different, uh, that we shouldn't see them in terms of competing with us in each of these uh, uh, spheres? Sure. I, I mean, I, I, would, I would lean towards the former, not the latter, uh, despite the fact that China has been opaque in terms of what they're spending on defense and what specific capabilities they may be investing in at any given time. They've been very transparent about their aspirations. So if we listen to Xi Jinping uh, last year at the Communist uh, Party uh, Committee, uh, he was pretty clear about uh, wanting China to be a global power with global power projection capability. And, uh, and among the capabilities of developing are aircraft carriers, which would certainly indicate a desire to project power beyond uh, their territorial waters. So one particular area of, of potential uh, Chinese power is at the frontier of, of military uh, technology, and that's artificial intelligence. Sure. All of the systems, the autonomous weapon systems, uh, the, the algorithms that will drive warfare, that, that the Chinese seem particularly uh, eager to, to, to dominate. You mentioned Xi Jinping's speech last fall. That was at the center, this idea it that was. China will command the technological heights in the future. And I want to ask you uh, to talk a little bit about how you see AI transforming your business uh, of military sure. power and whether you worry that we're not doing enough given its apparent importance to, to, to get our focus set on, on meeting this Chinese yeah. challenge? First of all, when, when I, in, in our profession, uh, one, of the, one of the areas that's going to really determine future outcomes is speed of decision making. And so AI is certainly relevant to speed of decision making. If you think about cyberspace, uh, AI is critical. Uh, to being able to uh, implement effective ways of protecting ourselves in cyberspace. If you think about operating in that environment I spoke earlier, the anti-access area denial, and you talk about capacity sufficient to be able to operate in a very complex uh, operating environment, uh, man-machine teaming is, is obviously a critical element. And I, I don't think it would be an overstatement when we talk about artificial intelligence to say that whoever has a competitive advantage in artificial intelligence and can field systems informed by artificial intelligence could very well have an overall competitive advantage. I mean, I think it may be that important. I don't think it's something we can say uh, definitively at this point, but it's certainly going to inform and be the preponderance of the, of, of the variables that would go into, hey, who has an overall competitive advantage? AI will be a key piece of it. And with regard to whether we're doing enough, I would just tell you in this in so many areas, uh, I would never be complacent in telling you uh, that we're doing enough. Uh, you know, we are clearly 
in a competition for a competitive advantage. And without exaggeration, I mean, I can tell you that our overall competitive advantage has reduced uh, over the past 10 or 12 years. 10 or 12 years ago, whoever was sitting in my seat could have said that we are uncontested in all domains, uncontested in our ability to project power when and where necessary. Uh, I can't say that today. What I can say is that we can defend the homeland in our way of life. We can meet our alliance commitments today, and we have an aggregate competitive advantage over any potential adversary. I'm equally confident in saying that if we don't change the trajectory that we were on for that 10-year period between about 2000 and tw 2002, 2003 to 2000, maybe 15 or 16, so even maybe a bit more than 10 years, if we don't change that trajectory, who's ever sitting in my seat five or seven years from now will not be as confident as I am. So the, the trajectory has been in the wrong direction, and technologies like artificial intelligence are going to be a critical element uh, to our ability to, be, to have a competitive advantage in the future. And again, when I benchmark our competitive advantage, I really talk about things like conventional deterrence, our ability to respond effectively if deterrence fails. Ask you, let me ask you about one of the trickiest uh, parts of this uh, competitive problem uh, g going forward. One thing the Chinese uh, can command is the very best brain power in China sure. to work on these problems in ways that serve the government. Our arguably best AI company, Google, uh, was asked and agreed to be part of a Pentagon program called Project Maven where Google uh, computer scientists would write algorithms that would be useful for Pentagon uh, uh, warfighters. And the employees of Google uh, learned of this uh, and rebelled. I think that's the only way to put it. And there was a petition campaign, and all of a sudden, uh, Google decided that because of its employees' unhappiness, they were going to have to back out of Project Maven. And so I, just to put it to you simply, what would you say to Google employees if they were watching this uh, streaming, or employees sure. at Microsoft, or Amazon for that matter, what would the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff say about uh, the need for this brain power? Sure, first thing I'd say in very simple terms, where they're all sitting here right now, I'd say, hey, we're the good guys. We are the good guys, and it's inexplicable to me that we would uh, make compromises in order to advance our business interests in China, where we know uh, where we know that freedoms are restrained, where we know that uh, China uh, will take intellectual property from comp companies, strip that away, put the companies in the dustbin of history, and then use that intellectual property for their own advantage. We know those things are taking place. And so it's inexplicable to me that, that we wouldn't have a cooperative relationship with the private sector. I would also say that if you look at uh, the world order that we have enjoyed since World War II, and you look at the values that are represented in that world order, um, we have been uh, arguably the leader of the free world, the free world, uh, since World War II. Um, were we not to have the capability of leading the free world and advancing the values and interests that, that reflect our country's values and interests and the Western world's values and interests, there will be alternatives uh, to create a, an alternative order. And I'm not sure that people at Google will enjoy uh, a world order that is informed by the norms and standards of Russia or China, using the two examples that we discussed earlier. So that's, that's what I think I would share with the people at Google is that, again, uh, we are the good guys in the sense that uh, we do stand for what's right. We might make mistakes from time to time, but you know, our record of uh, standing up for principles of sovereignty, our record of standing up for human rights, our record of standing up for freedom of navigation and access to the global commons, I think is uncontested. If you look at it over the course of 70 years, if you highlight a single incident here or there, well, you can see where humans have made, it made uh, mistakes. But if you look at it over the course of 70 years, I think it's indisputable what we have stood for. So if you, if you believe in what we have stood for over the past 70 years, then you need to understand that that has only been possible because of the relationship that the U.S. military has enjoyed with industry. And one of the, you know, I talk about competitive advantages. One of the competitive advantages the U.S. military has enjoyed uh, for decades has been that public partner, uh, private partnership where we have been able to leverage the full human capital in the ideas of the American people. And if we don't have access to that, uh, we are not going to be competitive. That's a pretty uh, stark 
statement. You're basically saying if that connection is broken, we cannot uh, compete at the level that we traditionally have known. It, well, at best, we're playing with one hand behind our back, right? I mean, again, if, if you believe what I believe uh, and you look back at our experience in the past, that relationship with industry, the fact that human capital is unleashed in our country, that ideas can rise to the top and we can be out in front. It's not a mistake that academically and intellectually we've, we've led the world. That's because of our former government and uh, absent the ability to tap into Silicon Valley and have those kinds of relationships, we will not, we will not have that advantage that we've traditionally enjoyed. I think that's really the point I'm trying to make. I want to come uh, closer to home, in fact, uh, right at home. Uh, and that's to ask you about the deployment of regular U.S. military troops to the border uh, in, in November. Uh, that uh, was something that I guess was actually in late, late October. Right. That was a, a decision that, that surprised a lot of people. And as we've looked at what those troops have been doing, uh, General, uh, frankly, it looks an awful lot more like a paramilitary uh, set of, uh, of tasks the sort of thing that National Guard or law enforcement uh, personnel do than what you ask uh, our, our uniform military to, to do. So I want to ask you uh, why you as chairman uh, thought it was appropriate to go along with that order Sure. President, and how much longer this is going to last? Sure. Let me uh, let me walk back to what problem we're trying to solve. So the Department of Homeland Security has the primary responsibility for enforcing the border. The Department of Homeland Security uh, indicated to the president they had gaps in their capability. Those gaps included engineering capability to reinforce the points of entry. Uh, it included rotary wing uh, helicopter support and, in some cases, fixed wing heli uh, fixed wing aircraft to move their people around. And uh, they had some medical shortfalls and some logistic shortfalls. Those are all things that a resident in the Department of Defense. And so we worked very closely with Secretary Nielsen to refine uh, exactly uh, what capabilities uh, she needed us to provide. And, uh, and then the president gave us a legal order to support the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, David, I would tell you that uh, we're at a hurricane, we're at a fire. Uh, we routinely provide what, what are called Title 10 forces, active duty U.S. military forces to support the Department of Homeland Security. We go all around the world to respond in the wake of an earthquake, to respond in the wake of a natural disaster with U.S. military capabilities, to do things that they are not primarily trained, organized, and equipped to do, but they have the capability and capacity to support. So to me, uh, one, it was a, a legal order to support the Department of Homeland Security. The mission was absolutely clear. The troops had the proper training to execute that mission, and the rules of engagement uh, were clear to me. And so when you ask why was I... Uh, why, it starts with, why did I support it? Because it was a legal order. And why, uh, you know, why am I not concerned about it is because those things are all in place. I mean, when I look at recommendations to use military forces, it starts with, is the mission clear? Do our people have the wherewithal to accomplish that mission? That's training and equipment. And are the conditions under which they're operating clear enough for me to provide them guidance on how they should conduct themselves under those conditions? And, and it met all of those criteria. And what I hear you saying, just to close this out, is that you do not have authority as chairman to refuse a lawful order, whatever you may think about that order. No, that's right. And, and, and I think the American people would not want generals to be making policy decisions and wouldn't want generals to determine when we should use force. Uh, you expect me to provide advice uh, to our political leadership about how to use the military instrument. You'd expect me to provide advice about the appropriateness of using the military instrument under certain conditions. But if I receive a, law a lawful order, uh, I think the American people would expect me to execute that. And I think it'd be problematic were generals to start to make decisions based on one political party or another being in office and say, no, I don't, I don't really like that, and so I'm not going to do that. Uh, to me, it, it, it comes down to, is it a legal or order? Now, if I had a, a concern, you know, based on uh, principle, uh, you only have really one choice, is to obey a lawful order or to resign. Uh, and I can't imagine too many conditions where I would resign if given a lawful order since my, my code kind of tells me that Lance Corporals and PFCs and seamen can't resign uh, when they're told what to do if it's a lawful order. And in my, my own code, uh, informed a bit by 
General Marshall, and uh, you know we all point to him as kind of one of the one of the north stars of civil military relations. Uh, when I look at civil military relations in a democracy, that's kind of where I land. Um, I want to turn to another really interesting but also controversial issue, and that is uh, the president's desire to create a space force. Uh, President Trump, and this is an area where I, I have some sympathy with his viewers, actually, um, has felt that the Air Force wasn't moving fast enough, that we were not responding to challenges uh, in, in, in space. And so he said, I want to create a new branch of the military. Uh, and you were in the room when he made this there announcement. Was. And as I remember, he looked right at you and said, you got that, General? Uh, so uh, he didn't leave any doubt about about. Uh, I recall about saying, he... "I got that." <laughs> well, so, uh, so the, the question I think we all have is, um, where is this now heading? Sure, we, sure. We've, we've had a, a kind of official set of reactions, uh, but I think we're, we're we're puzzled as to whether you think the Joint Staff thinks you ought to be heading toward something like a a corps. Forgive me, a Marine Corps. Uh, former Marine Corps Commandant, uh, you know, something like the Marine Corps that, that would be space, but it would be under the Air Force as the Marines are under, under the Navy. Whether you can just take Space Command and shoot some steroids into it and kind of make that work. What, 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 sure. what are you thinking right now? Sure. First, you know, let's, if we can, just stipulate that, uh, and if we talk military operations, space is increasingly important, and there's no question about that. So the basic, what problem we're trying to solve is to make sure that we have the proper organizational construct to, uh, to deal with space. And there's three main areas in that regard. One is making sure we most effectively use the capabilities that we have currently fielded. The second problem we're trying to solve is to make sure we have the right organizational construct to develop the capabilities that we need tomorrow. And the third is uh, really the service type functions of training people, recruiting people, uh, retaining people, growing people, all the things that you might associate with a service. So those are the three main elements that we're, that we're when we look at space, we're trying to solve those three problems. With regard to the first problem, uh, we've already moved out, and we will, uh, in 2019, establish a unified command. What that means is, you know, we today have uh, what we call functional commands, and they're really commands that have global responsibilities. United States Strategic Command that has a nuclear enterprise is one example. United States Special Operations is another example. United States Cyber Command is another example. Transportation Command is another example. Each of those commands has a four-star that is responsible, works directly from a command authority's perspective for the Secretary of Defense. And we do that to elevate uh, those particular functions to the right level, to make sure that the right voice is there uh, to employ our capabilities and provide advice to the secretary. So we will, in 2019, elevate uh, space to a unified command. It will be a four-star in charge. That four-star's responsibility will take all of the resident capability that we have inside the Department of Defense today, uniform military capability, put it under one single commander so that we most effectively employ that. The second two problems, to develop capability and then come up with the right organizational construct, will result from a legislative proposal that will come from the president to the Congress, and, and the outcome will result on the dialogue that takes place between the president and the Congress on what is the right approach, what is the right organizational construct after those second two issues. The first issue is... is a responsibility I was given. We're moving out. We we have already, you know, kind of moved behind the scenes uh, to develop uh, that organization. We've conducted two tabletop exercises to inform how we'll do that, and we'll have a major exercise in February and March to refine our understanding of what what space command will look like and what the right command relationships will be and so forth. And then that legislative proposal, I would imagine, would come out sometime in 2019. Again, that'll be a legislative proposal from the president to the Congress, and I imagine in subsequent budget years uh, is when it will be addressed. So really, the details of this are still basically to be announced, subject to the president and Congress uh, making a, a joint decision. That's Until right. Until you get that, you're, uh, 
work. It's kind of, as you said. On the second, yeah, until we get that, it isn't that we're not doing anything. There's already an organization inside the United States Air Force that's responsible for capability development in space, so that's already being taken care of. And the United States Air Force, Navy, and the Army, for that matter, all have uh, components uh, that, that have space capabilities. So what we're talking about is, would we change that because we view there's a more optimal arrangement to develop capabilities for tomorrow and to manage our space uh, force, space people. And, uh, and, and I think everybody has probably concluded that we can make some uh, changes in those two areas to be better and, and to make sure we're out in front of, uh, of space as an, as an emerging uh, separate domain, uh, if you will, war fighting domain, again, one of the five. Uh, and, and, you, and you've seen some of the options, and so I'd probably just tease you with a few of them. I mean, look, you can sep- establish a separate uh, department of space with a separate service inside of that department, so a completely separate organization. I think the president wants new, new uniforms. I mean, You can create a separate service inside the Department of the Air Force as a second approach to that. And so there's, there's many ways to do that. And I think uh, what, we'll, what we'll see is a legislative proposal. The vice president is, uh, is uh, chairing the Space Council. Uh, this issue is being discussed in the context of the Space Council. And like I said, it'll, uh, so it's fair to say there's some details uh, remaining. But, but I wouldn't want to leave you with, uh, with nothing's happened since the president's speech. Uh, quite a bit has happened to include uh, our, our progress in standing up a separate command to, uh, to make sure we're most effectively employing the capabilities that we have today. We, we only have a, about five minutes left, and there are a couple of important things that I want to get to. Um, and one of them is, is Saudi Arabia. Here at the Washington Post, as everyone knows, we feel deeply the loss of our colleague and friend, Jamal Khashoggi, was, who was murdered uh, in Istanbul in October. Uh, since then, there has been a lot of... Uh, turbulence, to put it mildly, in the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And I'm wondering uh, whether that is affecting, will affect the U.S.-Saudi military relationship. And specifically, General, I want to ask you about about the war in, in, in Yemen. Sure. Uh, and, and what your own military advice is as members of Congress uh, seek your views, members of the administration, that that war... Uh, is a humanitarian nightmare. I'm just stating what, what everybody knows, and it's, it may get worse. What, what, what kind of advice are you offering? First, about the relationship with Saudi Arabia. Second, what to do in Yemen. Yeah, no. With regard to Saudi Arabia, I mean, Saudi Arabia is no different than any other country in the sense that the military-to-military relationship that we have with a given country is completely informed by our policy. And so there's been no change in our policy with regard to Saudi Arabia that has informed our military-to-military relationship to date. And I, and I, I, I would, and I mean this sincerely, express my condolences both to the Post and his family. I've seen, I've seen his family uh, m- many times uh, on television and, and read uh, what they have written in the Post and other, in other periodicals. Uh, and so when, if the policy changes, our military-to-military relationship changes. We have historically had a strong military-to-military relationship with Saudi Arabia. It has been historically a fact that uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, contribution to security and stability in the Middle East is, is important. And so we have approached our military-to-military relationship with that in mind. With regard to Yemen, I think it's probably important to clarify U.S. military uh, operations in Yemen are focused on two things, ISIS and al-Qaeda. We are not a participant uh, in the civil war, uh, nor are we supporting one side of the civil war on the, or the other. My advice uh, has been to continue to support Martin Griffiths. The good news is uh, there is an ongoing discussion in Sweden this week, which is, you know, uh, hope springs eternal, but arguably one of the more important uh, diplomatic developments in a few years with regard to Yemen is that the parties are actually in Sweden, and there's a, there's a framework that gives us some reasonable expectation of an outcome that advances the situation in, in Yemen uh, to some degree. But again, uh, I would I would continue to recommend that we are not a participant in the civil war in Yemen, and we remain 
an honest broker, if you will, with the ability to contribute uh, to a diplomatic solution in Yemen. There is not a military solution. You've covered that as much as anybody has. There's not a purely military solution in Yemen, as it, it, just like there isn't any complex contingency of the sort of Yemen. And so uh, our military advice is focused on al-Qaeda and, uh, and ISIS and making sure we have the partnerships in the region to make sure we can disrupt uh, what, has, what has been over the last few years the most... Uh, insidious strain uh, of al-Qaeda, which has been al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and, uh, and obviously concerned about ISIS there and as, as we are elsewhere. There have been calls increasingly from Congress to cut off uh, military sales to Saudi Arabia. Again, strictly from a, from a military standpoint, what would be the consequences of that in terms of regional security in your view? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that it's fair to say that Saudi Arabia would be less capable without access to U.S. technology and capability. Uh, I, I will not weigh in on uh, whether or not we ought to do that uh, because the military dimension in this case is but one of the considerations that our nation is going to have to make when determining whether or not to continue to sell weapons to uh, Saudi Arabia. Right now, there's been no change in our policy, and so that's what we're doing. But I do understand the debate uh, that's taking place with regard to whether or not we'll do that in the future. And again, most of the considerations are very important, but they're not military considerations. So I have one last question. In some ways, it's, it's, it's probably the hardest one, and that's Afghanistan. Uh, this is a war that's been going on now for 17 years. You were in Afghanistan earlier this year, and I think you said uh, you thought we were making progress. We have just been through a period in which the cost in American uh, lives uh, has, has seemed to spike up again. Uh, the efforts underway to try to find some uh, negotiated settlement of the, of the conflict. But at what point, uh, General Dunford, do you, would you say, as, as chairman, um, it, it's time to uh, uh, stop uh, putting American soldiers' lives at risk in Afghanistan and, and begin to draw that down? What, do you, in your mind, I know you don't like timetables, but I'm sure you, you, there is a point at which, at which a military commander says, that's it, we're not going to spend another American life um, in, in, this, in, in a particular conflict. Look, it's a, it's a fair question. It's a good question. And, and, uh, and certainly this week, uh, having lost uh, five soldiers uh, in the past two weeks, uh, a question that weighs heavily on all of our minds. And, and it isn't that we don't uh, every day uh, think about that. Uh, what I would say about Afghanistan, we've got to go back uh, on a fundamental assumption. And this is an assumption I make, and we can argue this assumption, but it's an assumption I make, and it's informed by the intelligence. Were we not to put the pressure on al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other groups in the region that we are putting on today, it is our assessment that in a period of time, their capability would reconstitute, and they have today the intent and they in the future would have the capability to do what we saw on 9-11. So when I look at Afghanistan, it starts with that assumption in mind. So again, people can argue that assumption. So my, uh, what problem am I trying to solve uh, has less to do with security and stability in Afghanistan than it does first and foremost with making recommendations for the employment of military force that protects the American people, the homeland, and our allies. So that's where we start. And it's my judgment that uh, the presence that we've had in Afghanistan has, in fact, uh, disrupted the enemy's ability to reconstitute and pose a threat to us. And uh, we assess this probably for those that don't pay close attention to Afghanistan on a routine basis. There are 20 trans-regional terrorist groups operating in and around the South Asia uh, area. So uh, the question is, to me, not when we should leave. I believe we have enduring interests in South Asia and we will have an enduring diplomatic presence, enduring economic presence, and enduring security presence in South Asia. The real debate ought to be, what is the character of that presence? And today, my recommendations on the character of our presence are informed by my assessment of the threat in the region and the level of effort that is required to disrupt threats to the homeland. And, and were the Afghan forces capable on their own, of dealing with ISIS and al-Qaeda, and were we to have uh, a political reconciliation, which is our long-term end state in, in Afghanistan, political reconciliation that would set the conditions for us to adjust our force posture, I think all of us would be happy. 
but in my judgment today, uh, in order to achieve our political objectives, the force that's on the ground, the level of advising, assisting that we're providing, the capabilities that we're providing to enable Afghans to take the fight to the Taliban are necessary for one piece of our strategy, which is military pressure. And I'll just give you the theory of the case. The theory of the case in Afghanistan is that we will put sufficient political pressure, sufficient social pressure, and sufficient military pressure on the Taliban such that they will reconcile in an Afghan-owned, Afghan-led reconciliation process. When I, when people said that I said that things were moving better, uh, what was left out of that conversation was the full context of my conversation. So what I said was that. Uh, with regard to political pressure, the recent elections were another element in, po- in terms of being positive in putting pol- political pressure on a Taliban. Social pressure, I was encouraged by the fact that imams in uh, uh, Indonesia, in Pakistan, and in Saudi Arabia had issued fatwas uh, that, that, that truly, I think, advanced uh, the case of the Afghan government. And and the third piece was, uh, I believe, that with the changes we made in the South Asia strategy and the conditions-based approach that NATO and our partners took and the fact that we were willing uh, to provide resources to support the Afghan National Defense Security Forces through 2024, which is a decision made at the NATO uh, 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 meeting last, uh, last summer, what I said was that in my judgment, particularly with some of the initiatives in the diplomatic track, the pressure on the Taliban was moving in the right direction. And we were seeing, for the first time, certainly in many, many years, we were seeing some opportunities to initiate that Afghan-owned, Afghan-led reconciliation process. I am very measured in terms of making predictions about uh, where we are in that process. I think anybody that has studied negotiations know that you really never know where you are uh, in a negotiation until it's over. And so there is plenty of work to be done with regard to uh, an Afghan-owned, Afghan-led reconciliation process. But my judgment, continuing to bring to bear that political, uh, social, and military pressure is necessary. And to be honest with you, I have not recommended that we leave Afghanistan because, again, in my judgment, leaving Afghanistan not only uh, would create instability in South Asia, but in my judgment would give uh, terrorist groups the the space within which to plan and conduct operations against the American people, the homeland, and our allies. And that that really is the problem we're trying to solve. And I I would tell you, for those uh, critical of what we're doing, You know, my level of confidence, I had all the answers when I was a second lieutenant was way up here. And my (laughs) level of confidence that I have all the answers today based on my experiences is way down here. And and so there's an inverse relationship. So if someone has a better idea than we have right now, which is continue to support the Afghans and continue to put pressure on those terrorist groups in the region, uh, I'm certainly open to a dialogue on that. Great conversation. Um, I'll be back uh, in a few minutes for a discussion with the DARPA director. Uh, Stephen Walker, but for now we'll move on to the next portion of our program. Before we do that, please uh, join me in thanking our terrific speaker, General Duncan. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.